Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. An interesting science story that developed this week, scientists have created a new, more powerful technique to edit genes. While most people may be familiar with CRISPR, this new method is called prime editing, and it offers more precise gene cuts with less errors. For more on this story, we spoke to Jackson Ryan. He's a science editor at CNET. For more on how beneficial this new gene editing technique can be. This is a really exciting development for gene editing in general. Now, I guess to really distill it down to its basic level, a base editor can change the letters of DNA and CRISPR-Cas9 can do the same thing. But prime editors have a really unique ability to find and replace entire swathes of DNA and do it without creating errors. And that's the biggest key and the biggest change over CRISPR and base editing is that there's such a low error rate. And really at the moment, what's preventing this technology from being used in human therapeutics to treat genetic disease is the fact that the error rate is just too high for us at the moment. But the exciting part is if we are able to refine it and get it to work as we want it to, it could enable treatment for approximately 89% of human genetic mutations that cause disease. So it could really be a huge game changer. This is game changing in that being able to bring that error rate down is really what's hampering CRISPR from being sort of used in a human therapeutics. And I use the example of sickle cell anemia, which is something that Lou's lab did in this new paper. Sickle cell anemia affects your blood cells. So your blood cells take on a sickle shape and they actually become really sticky and they can't carry oxygen around the body as well. And in that disease, it's actually only a very tiny genetic mutation that causes it. So if prime editors can go in and edit the DNA of a patient with sickle cell disease and refine that tiny little change, that one genetic mutation, one DNA letter, you can actually essentially cure sickle cell anemia. And that's sort of been, in essence, a holy grail of medicine for a long time to be able to go in, change one base in your genetic code and essentially cure a disease. Traditionally, the CRISPR tool would cut across, basically. It would cut across both strands of the DNA, and this new style, we can just make the exact edits that we need. CRISPR is often referred to as molecular scissors. So it comes in, it cuts the DNA strand, both because DNA is double-stranded, it cuts both strands. And basically, to edit the gene then, what happens is the body's natural system repairs that break. So depending on how it repairs the break... Sometimes you'll get the edit that you want, and sometimes you won't. You'll get something even weirder. So that's why CRISPR's sort of error rate is much higher, because when those scissors come in and cut the DNA, they don't just cut the target that you want. Sometimes they'll actually cut DNA far away from your target site as well. But prime editing, it doesn't cut both strands of the DNA. Instead, it actually kind of creates this little flap of extra DNA, and that is what gives it really high precision. But also... Basically, what it has to do is perform this secret handshake. So you and I, if we're, if we're handshaking now, we might do a fist bump, we go into a quick grab, and then we hit each other's elbows or something. <laughs> Essentially, with CRISPR, it's a single handshake. It's just nice to meet you sort of thing, and that's what happens with the DNA and CRISPR. But with prime editors, they kind of have to do this secret three-step handshake. And with a three-step handshake, there's more opportunity to stuff it up and be like, hang on, you got the handshake wrong. 
So I'm not going to let you cut here. So that's what brings the error rate down and um, the off-target effects down a lot more than CRISPR is currently being able to be used. And how successful have they been with this? What they did in the paper is they took human cell lines, so four different human cell lines and mouse neuronal cells. With the cell lines, they corrected sickle cell anemia and they corrected Tay-Sachs disease. And basically, the success rate or the efficiency of cutting is anywhere between 20 and 70%. So this isn't perfect, but it also doesn't necessarily have to be. You don't have to get 100% DNA editing for it to be a successful treatment, for instance. For something like sickle cell, what actually happens for a patient is if I've got sickle cell anemia, I'll actually have my blood drawn. It'll be taken out of my body and then edited in the lab. And then what will happen is that blood will be put back into my system with the edits. And actually that is how you can start to treat sickle cell anemia. And indeed with CRISPR, this has already started to happen in the US. So there's been a couple of patients that have already undergone this treatment. So Prime Edit is just essentially, if they can bump up how successful that gene editing is, it could be pretty big for something like sickle cell anemia, where the changes that you have to make are very minimal. Jackson Ryan, science editor at CNET. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much, Oscar. Continuing on this science and medicine trend, there's an ongoing revolution with smart drugs, and it could be accelerating us into a 24-7 society. And chances are that you might already know someone who's taking cognitive enhancing drugs. Alex Wilkins, he's a reporter at Metro, joins us for how attitudes are changing about smart drugs. There have always been drugs in human society that people have used for various reasons, especially stimulant drugs. People have been using caffeine for hundreds of years. But in the 20th century, things started to change a bit and the pressures on people and the things people needed out of their drugs also began to change in the 60s when it was sort of a counter revolution and it was very political and mind altering. People would take LSD to sort of expand their minds. In the 80s, when it was all about greed and expansion, people would take cocaine. But in the 90s and early 2000s, it was much more competitive. People had to get the edge on their competitors. So naturally, people turned to stimulants that would give them more alertness, more concentration, and greater supposed cognitive abilities. So it took a lot of time in production. But now there is a drug called modafinil, which is also marketed under Provigil in the USA, that supposedly gives these cognitive enhancing abilities. And through that, there's a whole industry has opened up. You have modafinil or Provigil. You have the greater field of nootropics, which are marketed in various forms from sort of simple caffeine substitutes to more risky research drugs. And altogether, it's an enormous industry. There are billions of dollars going into this. People all over the world are taking it in their droves, thousands of people every day. It's really, we do seem to be on the precipice of something quite large and quite transformative for the way in which we relate to drugs in our society. Some numbers behind this, between 2015 and 2017, people using substances for cognitive enhancement jumped from 5% to 23% in the UK alone. And this industry, the brain health supplement market is going to be about $10 billion by 2025. It was only about $1.7 billion in 2016. And you got celebrities like Joe Rogan with his huge podcast. He endorses something called Alpha Brain. Gwyneth Paltrow through her Goop company supports something called Nerd Alert. So this industry and the money-making properties of it also are growing. There's a distinction to be made in terms of the products that these celebrities promote. Alpha Brain by Joe Rogan and 
this nerd alert from Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop are not necessarily medically improved cognitive enhancers. They have lots of drug components that have shown to maybe enhance memory and maybe enhance concentration. But a lot of the medical evidence for these is not conclusive. Because of that, they don't often have official medical branding. I mean, snake oil salesmen have been around forever. People have always tried to sell improvements for your brain. And we're in the 21st century, so they're going to be branded and pushed by celebrities. But there is a certain difference between these very popular ones and the medically approved ones like modafinil. We're talking about these smart drugs, these cognitive enhancers. Obviously, right away, I think of the movie Limitless with Bradley Cooper and who wouldn't want to take something has little side effects and then you're just a superstar after that. What we are seeing throughout all of this is a change in attitude. You know, a lot of people would say, well, healthy people don't need these types of drugs. You should be operating normally. But the attitude is changing on this. As these drugs do have less and less side effects, people kind of come around to and they're like, why wouldn't I take some of this? And it's not even these drugs. Also, there's these other techniques like this transcranial magnetic stimulation, which has shown to increase people's cognitive abilities also. People are definitely becoming a lot more comfortable with it. And especially as the biggest population of people that use modafinil is university students. These students will be going on into professional jobs. They will be maturing, going into other industries, and it will become more normalized over time. The industries that started off using them were ones that needed to be awake for long periods of time. So pilots, professors who were traveling from city to city, and students eventually who needed to do well in their exams. But as more numbers of people are using it, it will become more and more normalized. And you mentioned the transmagnetic stimulation. Again, that is something that there is a huge amount of active research on, and it's been shown to have quite positive effects in the brain. But obviously, I think people are slightly more comfortable taking a drug because of the history rather than putting on sort of a helmet that's going to stimulate their brain in certain ways. Alex Wilkins, reporter at Metro. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Finally, this week, the Great American Cannabis Experiment is about seven years old now. But with every new state that legalizes marijuana, the contradictions between state and federal laws become more apparent. While marijuana continues to remain illegal under the Controlled Substances Act, the cannabis industry is growing and generated over $10 billion in sales last year. What all this means is that some Americans are making money, producing, and selling cannabis, while others are being arrested and charged for the same activity. Natalie Fertig, reporter at Politico, joins us to break it all down. Legalization of medical marijuana and now recreational marijuana on the state level is really unprecedented. There isn't anything comparative in American history in terms of states legalizing or creating entire economic systems and markets and regulations for something that's federally illegal. There are other times in history where states and the federal government have been at conflict. Obviously, the Civil War is the most notable of those, but also the entire civil rights era was just one of the longest conflicts between the federal and state government. It was not as widespread, even though I would say it was a bigger conflict. We, at this point, have 46 states that have some sort of cannabis laws that are in conflict with the Controlled Substances Act. 33 of those have actual markets, either medical or cannabis, which means taxes and regulations and producers and distributors and growers. The other states that equal up to the 47 
just have legal CBD use for some medical issues. But that puts only four states that are actually in compliance with the Controlled Substances Act right now. And that's just totally unprecedented. So it creates these huge conflicts. And most of them really were not anticipated because there is nothing like this. Sometimes people try to compare this to alcohol prohibition, but that was really federally illegal. I mean, it was federally legal, whereas this is coming from the states up. There's nothing that regulators can look to as precedent before this. So as states have legalized things, they run into so many different hurdles as they discover, oh, this is a problem. What can we do about it? Oh, wait, we can't do anything about it. The federal government (laughs) is the only one that can do anything about that little thing. Right. And there is tons of money in the industry. Billions in sales are generated. Hundreds of thousands of people have been employed. States themselves have been making millions, hundreds of millions of dollars in taxes in places where it's been legalized. You wrote about one specific instance, the Green Lady Dispensary on Nantucket Island. Tell us a little bit about that, because that kind of illustrates pretty perfectly all the discrepancies between state and then federal laws and how difficult it is to operate a cannabis business. So Nicole Campbell owns the Green Lady Dispensary on Nantucket Island. And what's interesting about Nantucket Island and also Martha's Vineyard falls into the same category as this is they're part of the state of Massachusetts. They both legalized cannabis. They had pretty high numbers in favor of cannabis legalization. I think it was in the high 60s and low 70s in some areas of both of those islands. But they're so far off the coast of Massachusetts that there's federal water that lies between the mainland of the state of Massachusetts and Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard, the two islands. And because marijuana is federally illegal, even though that's still within state, it's kind of classified as going out of state or you have to go through federal water to get back into the other portion of the state. So Nicole and her business cannot source product from mainland Massachusetts, typically dispensaries don't grow their own product and process it and create edibles. Even if they do some, a couple products in-house, they're not doing their entire inventory themselves. That's just a lot to produce. And so she has to do everything in-house. She also has to do testing in-house, which a special provision was created by the state so that any dispensaries that open on the islands can do that. They just can't test for all the same things that you would test in a big scientific testing facility, these testing facilities that exist on the mainland. But they've kind of gotten it to the point where they know that they're going to have really the important basics covered. And so she does that testing at home. But yeah, she can't even send samples back to the mainland for testing. Yeah. And it's just so crazy because, as you said, you know, a regular cannabis business dispensary can source all that stuff from different providers. She can't. So she has to do everything. She has to manage all the licenses for it. It's just a lot for one business to do all on its own, considering all the different discrepancies there. So the big weed experiment now is about seven years old. That's when in 2012, voters in Washington and Colorado chose to make cannabis in their states legal for recreational use. But as we've been saying, there's just a lot of different things. Because of all these federal restrictions, research on marijuana can't really be done to maximum effect. People that want to do research have to get federally approved marijuana that comes from the University of Mississippi, I think it is. Banking regulations is a huge one. Talk a little bit about that. So there's so much in 
finance. When the Articles of Confederation were ended and the United States Constitution was started in the 1780s, each state gave up its rights to finance. It was one of the big things that was really creating a lot of difficulties amongst the states under the Articles of Confederation. So money is a big thing that the federal government controls. So banking services are really hard for cannabis businesses to get. Just to open a bank account is really difficult. There's been credit unions and some smaller community banks in a lot of these states that have opened their doors. But even then, usually cannabis businesses have to pay a couple hundred dollars a month for that bank account because the bank is taking on a lot more risk with their businesses because the bank is now accepting money that is technically still classified like a drug cartel money. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, It's become a big enough issue that this is a thing that the federal government is starting to move on. The Safe Banking Act has passed the U.S. House of Representatives and Republicans, specifically Idaho Senator Crapo, who is the chairman of the Senate Banking Committee, has said he would take it up and mark it up in the Senate, which is kind of unexpected because his state is one of those four that is actually in compliance with the Controlled Substances Act. So people were saying, what is his motivation for doing this? But There's a lot of banks in his state, and the banking industry has really gotten behind this bill because they want banks to know what they should do with the money, to have clear regulations, to be less in fear of being shut down or being investigated by the federal government. So that's kind of a big focus, but there's all these other things, too. One aspect that people talk about, but it really hasn't had as much focus on Capitol Hill as the Safe Banking Act is tax code 280E, which essentially is this tax code that says, hey, if you are in violation of the Controlled Substances Act, if you're earning money that is federally illegal, you're a drug cartel, you can't write off your business expenses. Like, sorry, your business is illegal. So no, you can't write off the notepads that you buy to take notes for your illegal business. I mean, it makes sense except for that states have now legalized these businesses. So these businesses are completely legal in each state, but they can't write off any of their business expenses. What's been the big major hesitance on the part of the federal government to either remove marijuana from the Schedule One classification that it has or just kind of change the laws altogether? I know Senator Mitch McConnell has said he's not going to take up anything that has to do with marijuana. I, I know that's a big hurdle there, but what's the big hesitance? The simple answer is a handful of senators like Senator Mitch McConnell. The way the Senate works is if a committee chairman does not want to take up a bill, that bill is not taken up and it does not make it to the floor. And if the majority leader, Mitch McConnell, does not want to take up a bill, it does not come to the floor. We're looking in the House right now. There's a couple different descheduling bills and the House is Democratic led. And there's been a lot of movement in favor of cannabis descheduling, which is legalization and descheduling are the same thing. But, you know, within that context, there's still a ton of questions. There's a lot of questions past just taking it off the Controlled Substances Act. Natalie Fertig, covering cannabis policy for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow the Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. 